0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
0: And today's topic uh, is one that I have kind of been dancing around for a while. Uh, she was a media sensation long before the concept of reality TV came around and long before TV even uh, her story sounds adventurous and incredible because it was. She was a frontier girl when in 1851 she was captured by Native Americans who attacked her family's wagon. And her story is full of twists and turns. So I'm not going to do the usual, um, you know, usually we do a little bit more intro, but I don't want to on this one because I want to just let it unfold because it really is quite an amazing story. We are talking today about Olive Oatman.
1: So Olive was the daughter of Royce and Marianne Sperry Oatman, and she was one of seven kids. She was born in Illinois in 1837, although there are some records that indicate that it might have actually been 1839. Yeah,
0: it makes me wonder if that wasn't one of those cases of poor penmanship where a nine and a seven looked kind of similar, uh, because you'll see it written both ways. And in May of 1850... Uh, the Oatman family joined a wagon train with several other members from their Mormon church to strike out for the West. And the Oatmans first traveled from Illinois, and then they met up with the larger group in Independence, Missouri, and that's where they all set out with nine wagons in a plan to travel to California.
1: But not long after the journey began, the Oatmans, along with a couple of other wagons, separated from that group. And uh, by the time they and the remaining families got to Arizona... A famine there made the prospect of staying kind of a daunting idea.
0: Yeah, they had always intended to keep going west, but, you know, they weren't sure where they were going to stay at various points. Um, but they really did not want to linger in Arizona. Uh, be- but there was also this fear that if they continued west, that they were going to be attacked on the road by native tribes. This was apparently a problem that was going on. It was pretty common with settlers Uh, And after they had had a little bit of a reassurance from a fellow traveler that he had not seen any immediate threats on the road, the Oatmans decided that they were going to take sort of the, the more daring path, and they left behind those remaining traveling companions to continue towards California. And during this, they followed the Gila River, which at the time was the border between the U.S. and Mexico, and they were traveling along what's called Cook's Wagon Road.
1: So they had really hoped that this path was going to be clear of any attacks. But on February 18th, 1851, the Omens were met on the road by a group of 19 Native Americans. And this was near Gila Bend, Arizona. According to an account that was written later, based on Olive's recollection, the last thing Royce said to his family was, do not be alarmed. The Indians won't harm you.
0: Yeah, he's generally characterized as a man who actually believed that most Native American violence was born of poor treatment from white settlers, and that if you treated people kindly, they would treat you kindly in return. But unfortunately, this did not uh, play out in this particular interaction. Uh, after that the natives that they had come in contact with first asked for tobacco and other supplies, which the Oatmans handed over, the interlopers started rummaging through the Oatmans' wagon. And when Royce Oatman finally told them he just could not give them any more food without damning his family to starvation, things turned violent. Uh, the group of men attacked the Oatmans. They killed both Royce and Marianne and four of the children.
1: Olive fainted, and when she regained consciousness, she heard her mother groaning and tried to go to help her. But she was held back by their attackers. She and her sister Marianne, who were both just terrified, watched while the men looted the wagon and the bodies.
0: Uh One of the other children, Lorenzo Oatman, uh, was 15 at the time. And he had been clubbed and left for dead. And in fact, he had uh, been tossed over this kind of ravine edge. But he did eventually regain consciousness sometime after the event had happened. And when he did, he quickly realized that most of his family had been murdered. But his sisters, Olive and Marianne, were simply gone.
1: Lorenzo tried to make his way back to the wagon train that the family had originally split off from. Uh, They were at Maricopa Wells, Arizona, which was a little less than 50 miles or 80 kilometers away. This was a really long and slow journey, and he was extremely injured. Fortunately, he was found by two men from a nearby village who recognized him and got him to Maricopa Wells. Lorenzo received treatment for his wounds there before going back to bury his family.
0: And in sort of a cruel twist to this story, I mean, the whole thing is extremely cruel, but Royce Oatman had actually sent word ahead to Fort Yuma that the family's supplies were running low, that he had seven children with him, and that they really needed assistance. And an entomologist that they had met on the road named John LeConte uh, had been carrying that request to Fort Yuma and on his way there he and his guide encountered a band of native americans on the trail uh and that group stole the horses that Lacante and his guide had been riding and so those two men decided that they were going to continue towards Fort Yuma on foot but they also knew that they may not get that note delivered in a particularly timely manner since they no longer had horses and so Lacante had actually posted a warning card on the tree for the Oatmans that there were hostile Native Americans in the area. We don't know if Royce ever saw that warning or not. Uh, there has been some speculation that the same men that stole leconte and his guide's horses were part of this party that eventually attacked the Oatmans.
1: Meanwhile, the two surviving Oatman girls were basically starting a new life as captives of the people who had left them orphaned. Olive was 14 at the time and Marianne was 7. After the attack, the two girls were forced to walk barefoot for four days over approximately 60 miles or 97 kilometers worth of terrain.
0: Olive would later uh, tell people that their captors had been Apaches, but that has largely been dismissed. Uh, the more likely group to have captured these girls and attacked the family would have been Yavapai. Uh, they had a village much closer to the site of the attack. It just made more logical sense. And it's highly likely that they were uh, Tolkapaias, which is a specific small branch of the Yavapai. They kind of identified by geographic location. So we don't think it was Apaches.
1: Initially, Olive was afraid that her kidnappers were going to burn them alive. She also feared that as they marched, they would try to leave Marianne behind because she was struggling to keep up. Marianne, who was suffering from shock, was beaten when she refused to go any further uh, because she was basically exhausted. However, the two girls were both kept alive. And while the
0: Yavapai had dabbled in ceremonial cannibalism on occasion, that was apparently a fairly rare occurrence, and that is not the fate of the Oatman girls. For a year, these two girls were basically kept as slaves. They were uh, doing the bidding of the Yavapai women and children.
1: Before we get to the next event, which really shifts the fortune of the Oatman sisters, let's pause for a word from some sponsors.
0: you're really going to enjoy, the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly
0: excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: Sistine Chapel so it's going to be a fantastic trip
1: you can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuffy missed in history class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there too
0: so uh, back to the story of Olive and Marianne in the fall of 1851. Uh, so at this point, the girls were with the Yavapai for a number of months. Uh, the Yavapai and the Mojaves engaged in a trading summit of sorts. This was an annual event that they did every year. And it was during this trading ritual that the Mojave tribe first offered to trade for these two white girls. And initially, the Yavapai refused, and these girls remained with their captors through that winter.
1: But in the spring, the Mojave chief sent his daughter and five men to once again try to make a deal for the girls. After a lot of debate, the Yavapai took the deal, although the Mojave were really insistent that they were acting out of kindness and concern for these white children. The Yavapai, though, told Olive that they were going to be sold or killed. So as she and Marianne were traded to their new owners, they were completely uncertain of whether their situation was uh, improving or getting worse. In the end, the Mojave paid two horses, three blankets, and an assortment of vegetables and beads for the two captives. And initially,
0: the Mojave might have seemed just as cruel as the Yavapai had been. Uh, This is a tribe that normally traveled very quickly. And as had been the case with their kidnappers, the girls struggled to keep pace as they traveled. Uh, However, unlike the Yavapai, the Mojave saw that these girls were struggling and they made adjustments to try to accommodate the situation. So they actually made the girls some foot coverings, kind of uh, ad hoc foot coverings out of some animal skins that they had. And they decided that they were going to shorten the distance that they traveled each day. Like they would just let the journey take longer so that these girls could actually make the journey and not be, you know, potentially physically harmed by the grueling uh, schedule they were trying to keep. It ended up taking 11 days of travel for this party to reach the Mojave Valley.
1: While they were with the Mojave, the Oatman girls were treated as tribe members rather than as slaves. They were fed and they were cared for, neither of which had seemed routine during their time with the Yavapai. It seems like they were adopted by a leader and his wife, and that this family is probably also who who arranged for the two of them to be traded from the tribe that had kept them as slaves. They wound up being raised as part of the family.
0: And during this time, uh, the girls were tattooed. And this is often what you see Olive Oatman kind of referred to as the woman who lived with Native Americans and returned with this tattoo on her face. So this was a pattern of lines and triangles on their chins, and it was blue. And while these were pretty common markings in the Mojave culture, and they served as symbolic sort of passports into the land of the dead, it was really quite a spiritual marking, Uh Olive would later tell people that this inking marked them as slaves. And we'll get to why that may have played out later, but regardless of how Olive would have eventually painted it, and even taking into account that this is likely something that the Mojave did, believing it was going to benefit the girls, this marking did change them permanently in a way that was going to forever set them apart if they were ever to return to the life they had once known. So it was one of those things that really kind of became a a significant demarcation of like, you can never go back from this.
1: There's still a lot of uncertainty about how indoctrinated Olive would have become into the tribe's customs, especially as it related to sexual practices. So the Mojave are said to have been very sexually pretty liberal, especially compared to the upbringing that Olive had had. It was common for them to encourage young people to be sexually active, but, there, they also had a fear of having sexual activities with other races. So Olive categorically denied any sexual activity during her time with the Mojave. But the debate among historians really continues. Uh, Holly and I were talking before we started about how a lot of the biographies of Olive Oatman um, from earlier in the past are really highly sensationalized. So I have a feeling that that plays a part in all of that as well.
0: It does. And what's actually interesting in this particular instance and on this particular issue is that there are uh, believers and detractors in terms of like whether or not she was ever uh, married or sexually active within the tribe on both sides, both on the sensationalist angle and the more kind of um, measured and historically researched angle, because there are some experts in this tribal culture that say Look, the odds of her getting marked that way and not having been part of the tribe's full culture are pretty low. But then there are others who point out, no, they had this fear of sexual intermingling with other races. And then, of course, on the sensational side, it was very exciting to kind of, you know, think about the horrible things that these girls might have had to endure. And some of that may have been. Uh, sexual in nature. And so it's an interesting area where there are a lot of voices and a lot of dissenting opinions, but they come from all different directions. Uh, you may have noticed that at this point we're talking about Olive specifically, and that is because Marianne actually died while they were living with the tribe. Uh, this happened when she was around the age of 12. Uh, this was not something that happened to her because she was a captive, though. She suffered the same fate as many of the other members of the Mojave when a drought in 1855 caused a severe food shortage, and it starved many of them to death.
1: So this was a time when the American West was still being colonized. And as contact with Native American peoples was becoming more common, the presence of a white woman already living with a Native tribe didn't go unnoticed. But at the same time, uh, people who were new to the area tended to just disbelieve this information when it was circulated as Rumor rather than as fact.
0: Yeah, and there's actually an interesting instant incident that happened uh, in 1854. So at that point, the Whipple Expedition, which was a wagon train of soldiers, servants, herders and scientists that were assembled to survey a route for a transcontinental railroad, uh, actually came in contact with the Mojave. And they traded with Olive's tribe for a week And the presence of Olive and her sister, because she would have still been alive at this time, at the Native American settlement would have been obvious. And this may be where many of the stories that spread about white women living there began.
1: But it seems that Olive didn't really make an effort to approach or reach out to any of the members of the Whipple survey. She would later tell people that the Mojave always told her that she was free to leave, but that she never knew which way to go from the settlement, so she stayed. This seems like an opportunity for an avenue back to a white settlement, but she didn't really seem to ever explore it. Yeah,
0: there's even some uh, debate over whether she may have hidden from the, the men of the Whipple expedition. Um, so that, that remains sort of an odd question mark. But eventually, once the confirmation of this unusual situation of a white woman living with this tribe was the real deal, was actually happening, there was action taken. And a message was eventually sent after a lot of uh, political maneuvering to the Mojave village asking for Olive's release. And uh, this started a very long series of negotiations.
1: At one point, the chief told the negotiators, I would like to raise this girl. We traveled far to buy her. We like her and we want to make friends through her. When those who come by us know how we treat her, they will treat us well, too. If the officers went to see her, they had better come here and talk with me.
0: Yeah, he really wanted, he he felt earnestly that if he talked to the people in charge, they would understand. Um, and more ne- conversations and negotiations continued because this was sort of a big deal at this point. Uh, a ransom was offered and that ransom, we should point out, was not asked for by the Mojave. Uh, it was simply offered by these negotiators that were trying to get Olive back uh, and Olive was actually present for some of these talks about her future, although it doesn't seem like she had a lot of input. Uh, eventually, she was released for a negotiated ransom of two horses, blankets and beads. So very similar to the deal that the Yavapai had made with the Mojave for Olive and Marianne. And then Olive was taken to Fort Yuma.
1: When Olive was turned over to the U.S. Army, she wept, but these were not tears of joy. She grieved the loss of her Mojave family. She tried to bury herself in a sandbank by the Colorado River, although there's some debate about exactly why she did this. Some accounts say that she was trying to hide her toplessness, and others claim that it was driven by being reluctant to return to a world of, uh, of white culture and a, and a white town.
0: Uh, but before we get to Olive's life after her time with the Mojave, uh, let's pause for a word from a sponsor. Uh, today we're going to talk about Squarespace, which is super easy to use. It has a drag-and-drop intuitive interface. You do not need to learn how to code to put together a really fabulous and beautiful website. And you're going to have 24-7 customer support there to help you any day, any time. Uh, they can support you through email, through live chat. They're going to help you make beautiful designs, uh really clean websites. Your content becomes the focus rather than trying to worry about how it all fits together. They will also uh, help you with their easy logo creator. So you can really get a nice quality logo for your website or your company uh, at squarespace.com slash logo. And that is free for Squarespace customers. If you have a commerce site you want to put up, you can do that. Your website is going to look great on every single device that accesses it. And you can try their product risk-free. Just go to squarespace.com slash history. That's a 14 day trial. And that's going to not require a credit card in the least. So uh if you fall in love with it, and you probably will, it's going to be as low as $8 a month uh, to keep your website going. And that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So remember, if you use the offer code history, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. Olive's reintroduction to white society was, as you would probably imagine, a little bit jarring. Uh, first, as we kind of hinted at a little while ago, her clothing was inappropriate. It left her upper torso completely uncovered. So she had to be changed into proper clothing, which is something she had not worn for, at this point, years. Uh, she also needed to be bathed. And one of the sort of big transition things is that her hair at this point had been darkened with mesquite from its normal light brown shade to a deep black. So she kind of was like literally washing off her Mojave culture at this point. Uh, second, Yuma at this time is often characterized as a sort of hell on Earth. Uh, it was hot, which was part of it, but it was always hot. However, that particular year uh, in 1856, there were some extremely violent dust storms, and they also had a really serious bug problem at the time. And just the conditions there at Fort Yuma were not fabulous.
1: People cheered for her when she arrived, but she didn't really understand why. She gave a formal interview with an officer, during which she recounted all that she had been through to the best of her recollection. Some of her answers were incorrect, and some of the timelines were a little off, which is not really surprising. Uh, And when she spoke of the Mojave, she said, they saved my life.
0: Yeah, this initial uh, interview that she did is often kind of uh, brought up as as evidence against uh, many of the later writings about her, that no, this doesn't really line up with the first things that she told white people when she started talking to them about what she had been through. Uh, This is also during that interview, the time that she learned that her brother had actually survived the attack by the Gila river. So very quickly, she and Lorenzo were reunited. He had actually been searching for her in the years since their separation. He had been looking for his two sisters pretty continuously And he even went on scouting trips of his own. He petitioned authorities to take a more active role in searching for answers about just what had happened to his missing sisters.
1: She basically became famous overnight. Newspapers took her story and really ran with it. And soon everybody knew some version of Olive's story.
0: Yeah. And there was actually a book that came out the year after she uh left the Mojave in 1857 and this book was titled Life Among the Indians and it was written by Royal B. Stratton. He was a minister and he certainly had an agenda in the writing of it. Uh, this book flew off the shelves and on the plus side it made enough money to put both Olive and Lorenzo through school at the University of the Pacific.
1: The book was pretty sensationalized and a lot of its content appears to have been basically invented It was not an accurate account of Olive's time living with Native Americans. This actually probably was its appeal. It reinforced a lot of false beliefs and fears and prejudices that the white colonists already had. And this
0: book also launched Olive's career as a public speaker. So in the years following, she would spend a lot of time touring the country and relaying her story, Although it did seem at this point that the story that she was telling was the one that people wanted to hear and that lined up with Stratton's book rather than the one that she actually lived and had initially described in her interview with the military officer when she first came back.
1: There's also some speculation that one of the reasons that her story shifted is that she experienced some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder while trying to return to white society. And that to some degree, her memories and her impressions over time with the Mojave became kind of muddled with her time with her original captors.
0: And it's certainly not unusual for someone who's been through a trauma, and frankly, someone who hasn't been through a trauma, to experience some degree of memory distortion. Uh, and she kind of talked about this in letters to family as she was settling back into life among uh, white colonists where she would be like, oh, I'm just now realizing, you know, what I've been through and what, what's going on. And so we don't know how much of the reality shifted during this time in her mind. And we'll never know for certain whether her telling of this story, as she did in these public lectures, was colored by mental anguish or, to some degree, a sense of theatrics. Remember, this really was supporting her at this point, or if it was some mingling of the two. In
1: 1865, Olive got married to a cattleman named John B. Fairchild. The two of them met after one of her lectures, and according to some accounts, her new husband was really not interested in Olive's past to the point that he seemed to just want to erase it. He stopped her from going on lecture tours. He burned all of the copies of the Stratton account of her time as a captive that he could get his hands on. We don't really know if he was trying to protect her or if he found her past shameful. Yeah, he
0: apparently really went to some great effort to procure every possible copy he could of that book and have it destroyed. Uh, and what's interesting is that this, uh, marriage to Fairchild, and it seems like they had really quite a good match. Uh, I, I want to be careful that we don't sort of just paint this as a man who was very controlling and wanted to eliminate her history, but he, we don't know what his, his motivations were, but we do know that at this point she pretty much severed all ties with uh, her biographer, Stratton. And Stratton had also been the person responsible for booking her lectures. And he is really said to have strongly encouraged her distorted version of her story. Uh, he knew it was going to draw crowds. And so he was really pretty gung-ho on this sensational version. And he eventually went mad and ended up dying in an asylum. But after uh, her marriage to Fairchild, he was no longer part of Olive's life.
1: Seven years after their wedding, John and Olive moved to Sherman, Texas. And four years after that, in 1876, they adopted a daughter, Mary Elizabeth, who they called Mamie.
0: Yeah, her name, Mary Elizabeth, was the combination of each of their mother's names. Uh, and as she aged, even though her life in many ways seemed to be kind of settled and, and really pretty stable, Olive uh, experienced a lot of bouts of depression, which is Probably not a big surprise when you consider what she had endured at a very early age. Uh, She was also frequently troubled with headaches. There are rumors that she went into an asylum, although none of that is substantiated. Uh, But we do know that in 1881, she spent several months at a medical spa in Canada uh, and that most of her time there was basically spent just on bed rest. In
1: 1903, Olive Oatman Fairchild died of a heart attack at the age of 65. She's buried at West Hill Cemetery in Sherman, Texas. And in 1969, a Texas historical marker was added to the gravesite.
0: The story of Olive Oatman's life has so many variations depending on the telling that there are always going to be a lot of question marks involved in it. And the sensational nature of it, even without the Stratton biography and the kind of really amped up crazy stories that he included... Uh, actually inspired other performers to adopt some of Olive's story as their own. So there were actually some circus ladies that would sometimes tell almost identical tales of having been adopted by so-called, quote, redskins and tattooed to show that they belonged to a tribe. And this, of course, you know, further diluted the truth of Olive's original story in the public mind and it, it led to so some, you know, sort of legend and confusion in some of the more lurid accounts of her life.
1: There were even some claims that people made after the fact that they had rescued Olive from her captors, but these were basically really easy to expose as false because they had a number of inaccuracies. Yeah, there was one
0: guy that claimed that he had walked into the teepee where these people were keeping her, and he had carried her out and... uh there were some other elements to it and, and someone very quickly was like, uh, hey, those Native Americans don't use teepees. Uh, so there were things like that that just kept coming up that, that pretty quickly made those crazy accounts obviously falsified. Uh, but another part of the mystique of Olive's story comes from the vast contrast that would have existed at the time, of course, between her fairly serious Mormon upbringing up to the time of her kidnapping and then her time in the Mojave culture, which was so very different in terms of uh, values. Uh, her family had led a very serious life, whereas Oatman's adoptive family would likely have been a much more lighthearted group. Uh, it's said that the Mojaves really loved a good joke and that they were very comical. They loved laughter. They would make some very, very uh, off-color jokes. Uh, and in fact, her nickname when she was with them is a very dirty word basically uh we're not sure exactly why she got that nickname but it did not seem to be in any way derisive uh they also were in at that point in a society where uh women would have had a great deal more freedom and a, a higher social standing than that they would have been in you know white culture and particularly in this era uh so while there's always been speculation about this juxtaposition and what it meant in terms of Olive's demeanor, we really don't know, though, what level of autonomy she may have had in her time with the Mojave uh, versus, you know, what she had experienced prior or after that. But we do know that after she returned to white culture, she was consistently stoic and serious. There's actually only one written account of her ever laughing. And that was during that first interview that she gave after she had returned so part of Olive's mystique undoubtedly also comes from the vast contrast that existed between her Mormon upbringing up to the time of her kidnapping and her time with Native Americans, and specifically the Mojave culture. Uh, whereas her family had led a very serious life, uh, Olive's adoptive family with the Mojave would likely have been much more comical and lighthearted. Uh, this is a culture that at the time, certainly was uh, all about jokes. They really liked a good joke, including good dirty jokes. Laughter was very important. Uh, and at this point, women in their society would have had a great deal more freedom and a higher social standing than would have been the case with the white culture that Olive came from. While there's always been speculation about this juxtaposition and what it meant in terms of Olive's demeanor, we don't truly know what level of autonomy she may have had in her time With the Mojave. But as a woman returned to white culture, she was consistently very stoic and serious. There's actually only one account on record of her laughing. And it was actually during that first interview that she did with the military right after she came back from living with the Mojave.
1: As for the Mojave version of Olive's time with them, we don't really have a lot of documentation because they had no written language. The only first-person account we have of the Oatman children during this time is from an interview that was conducted in 1903. Anthropologist A.L. Kroeber spoke with a member of the tribe who knew Olive, and that man's account was really vastly different from the story that was put forth in Stratton's book.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely much more in line with the initial account that Olive gave. Uh, it certainly characterizes her relationship with uh, the tribe as much more of a family situation and one where she seemed pretty settled, respected, and fairly happy. So uh, very different from Stratton's book. And Olive's legacy lives on, actually, in a number of ways. Uh, There's an area near where the Oatman family camped, uh, right by the Gila River, which is called Oatman Flat. And there's actually a mining town in western Arizona that was renamed Oatman in 1909,
1: in 2006, 150 years to the day after Olive left the Mojave tribe, there was a gathering in Yuma, Arizona at the site of the Oban massacre. One of Olive's family descendants retold Olive's story to the crowd. And, uh, kind of to, to summarize the
0: nature of this story, uh, in Margot Mifflin's book, The Blue Tattoo, which came out in 2011, and it's kind of the, the, uh, scholarly biography done of her that really researched all of the various accounts and tried to, to sort out the sensational from what was really going on. The author sums up the mythology of Olive Oatman kind of perfectly by writing, quote, In her day, Oatman was freakish enough to invite speculation and guarded enough to ensure the speculation never ended. Uh Yeah, so that is our Olive Oatman episode. I, like I said, I wanted to do this for a long time and I, I really could have made it go on for days because there's so many details of her story and her time both uh, as a uh, in white culture and in Native American culture that are so fascinating. I highly recommend that book by the way.
1: Do you have some listener mail to cap this
0: all off? I do. Uh, this listener mail is from our listener Jordan And uh, she sent us a lovely letter. And first of all, I have to say, Jordan, your penmanship is spectacular. I am not kidding. Uh, She says, hey, Tracy and Holly, I was just going to separately mail these postcards to you. She included postcards with the letter, but decided I did not have enough room to write anything of importance. So this is my letter. I have been a listener now for a few years, and I have recently hooked my mom, dad and sister on your podcast. We spend family trips engrossed in multiple episodes at a time. Family discussions have never been so rich and educational. This past weekend, my family and I made a trip to Kansas City, Missouri. The first things we planned were visits to two local museums. First was the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, as I am a huge fan of baseball and the history of it has tied to our nation's history. Uh, The second museum we trekked our way to was the National World War I Museum at Liberty Memorial, both were full of facts I have never heard until now. The whole time I was at these museums, I thought of you too. Hopefully you find some sort of joy and interest from these postcards and they spark a desire for future episodes. PS, I would also like to thank you for all of the wonder- wonderful episodes on History's Finest Women. I have been finding the most joy in these episodes, especially Alice Roosevelt. I've been writing the names of these inspiring women down in a notebook with a short summary of the amazing things they did. I look to this list in times when I'm needing a little extra motivation or sass. Thank you again, sincerely, Jordan. Jordan, this is a great letter. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And your postcards are awesome. I love them. Uh, you know, I like knowing that she's sharing her love of history with her family and they're getting some good talks out of the whole thing. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so. Our email is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us at facebook.com slash mist in history, on twitter at mist in history, at mist at pinterest.com slash mist in history, and at mist if you would like to purchase any mist in history goodies for yourself or your friends and family. If you would like to, uh, visit our parent site. You can do so. That is HowStuffWorks. You can search for almost anything your mind can conjure and you will find some very interesting articles, videos, and other content around it. Or you can visit us at MistInHistory.com, where we have all of our episodes there available. We have show notes for any of our episodes since Tracy and I became part of the podcast and the occasional other goodies. So we hope you visit us again at HowStuffWorks.com and MistInHistory.com.